first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have lain him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have taken him, carried him away, tell me where you have taken him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and answered him in Aramaic, saying, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said all these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of those nails and place my hand into his side I will never believe eight days later his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them although the doors were locked Jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you then he said to Thomas put your your finger here 
see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. Friends, would you pray with me? God, today we come in the presence, gathered as a people, your people, this church, as well as friends and, and guests who have joined us this morning, either physically or online. We come and gather in the presence of the one who not only rose from the dead, but who told us that in believing, in banking on and trusting that, we ourselves might have life. And we need it. So God, we come rejoicing and happy that we have something to celebrate this morning. That there is a hope that transcends the world we live in. That has been true for over 2,000 years since you rose from the dead. But we look about the landscape of our own world right now and recognize that hope is in desperate short supply. We recognize that many people in our community, in our nation, even in this room this morning, are being driven by worry, anxiety, or fear over the future, over the present. Not as sure as perhaps some of us were even just a couple years ago that the future will be brighter than the present and the past. And God, for many of us, that uncertainty has, has led us into the sort of dual places of either uh, disillusionment and jadedness where we just check out and become cynical or where we become angry and we become determined to grab as much control as we can over a life that seems so out of control. God, we are desperately seeking hope and I pray this morning, God, that as your people gather as millions of Christians and tens of thousands of churches across this land gather today to proclaim a supernatural resurrection where eternity broke into time, I pray that you would give our world hope. God, we pray that you would give us hope, those of us who are uh, assembled here together or joining on our live stream. I pray that you would bring healing for people because of your resurrection, where there is pain and where there is suffering. We pray that you would bring hope to people because of your resurrection, where there is discouragement and disillusionment. We pray that you would bring confidence about the future that your resurrection speaks to in place of anxiety and fear about the future. Jesus, I pray that you would reveal yourself to me, to us who have gathered to hear from you, to celebrate you, to connect with you and the life that you rose to in a deeper and more powerful way than ever before. Perhaps we have never connected with that life before. Jesus, show us the life that you live and that you offer to us. That we might find hope, that we might find encouragement that is rooted in solid joy of what you're doing in history. 
And God, we pray that lives would change. Change us, we pray, for our good and your glory. In the precious and matchless name of your son, Jesus, we ask. Amen. Thank you so much. You may have a seat. There is uh, more energy in this room than I think there has been for over a year. Praise God <laughs> for that. That is amazing. And um, I was wondering how long this would stay on. It may not last much longer. Because not only is it warm and there's energy in the room, but it's also catching my little uh, cord behind my head, which is totally awkward, and you didn't need to know that, but now you do. Um, so, yeah. Those of you that know me, by the way, I'm Matt, if I haven't met you yet, uh, one of the elders here at the church, I also serve as our lead pastor. Uh, we are so glad that you guys are here this morning. We're so glad that you're joining us online. For the many of you who are, I was checking our online feed just a few moments ago and saw several people checking in saying hello. So we're glad whether you've gathered with us or you're joining us uh, from afar in real time. We are grateful to come together again. Now, those of you that know me know that I don't normally dress like this on a Sunday. Um, I appreciate all of you that have, especially guys that have gone ahead and donned the ties. I was telling uh, one brother earlier, like there was a wedding last weekend where I wore this suit and then now this is Easter and I'm wearing the same suit like twice in an eight-day span. I think that may be the first time that's happened and I don't remember how long, but you know, we dress up for important occasions. And for years, it's just been kind of a fun tradition we have at Harvest. Normally, we're pretty casual in how we dress and how we sort of operate as a church. But man, you know, you dress up for special occasions. So somebody either got married or somebody died or somebody rose from the dead. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> it's worth celebrating. It's good to have energy in the room. And now that I said that this thing is coming off, okay. I will leave the tie on, otherwise I will get in trouble with my dear wife, who's right here. I'm going to put this on her music stand, <laughs> because it's always good to provoke a fight on Easter Sunday. Okay, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, it really is good to celebrate, um, to celebrate hope, because that's what Easter is about. Um, it is so cool to celebrate hope, and we, we really need hope, don't we? We were, just, we were just praying about that a minute ago. The past 12 to 13 months have brought a lot of hardship, a lot closer to home for a lot more people than most of us are used to seeing uh, in our lifetimes. I mean, the worst pandemic in a century you know, brought a major disruption, a lot of uncertainty. I was actually just this week reading some articles, things that people were writing in the early months of the pandemic and wondering just how awful it was going to be. And there were some massive doomsday scenarios that were being predicted just a year ago. And thankfully, some of those haven't been quite as bad as we thought. Um, but there's been a lot of fear and a lot of disruption. And while initially there was kind of a national unity in how we were all responding, like, oh my gosh, we all got to figure this out and we're all in this together, of course we all know the story, right? The longer it went on, the more that unity fractured and split as more people read more information from more sources of their own choice and contradictory sources and became more convinced that we were right and everybody who disagreed with us is wrong. And pretty soon, you know, we're doing this with one another in the midst of a pandemic. It didn't help that the protests in the wake of George Floyd's death 10 months ago brought the incredibly contentious issues of racism that have always plagued our nation and its history right to the surface. Uh, it was interesting that there were, uh, many have predicted or, or estimated rather, there were more people involved 
in the George Floyd protests and everything that came in the wake of that last summer um, than in any other movement in the nation's history, which is really saying something for a nation that had the civil rights movement, you know, 50 plus years ago, drew so many more people in and to get involved. And yet there wasn't unity in that involvement, was there? We have been and remain as a nation deeply divided. And last November's presidential election, likewise, it brought a record turnout. You know, more people voted last November than have in elections for many, many, many years. And yet it remains one of the most contentious elections in memory. Happy Easter, right? I say all this, you guys know all this. I say all this, why am I saying it? Because, because we need hope. But when I say hope, I don't just mean hopeful feelings. We don't just need to be made to feel a little bit better. We need real hope, a real reason to believe that things can be genuinely better as we move ahead. A real reason to believe that lasting, positive change is possible. People, I think, are starving for that kind of hope. I know I am. How about you? That is what Easter is all about, believe it or not. One of the challenges of celebrating a 2,000-year-old holiday is that it feels remote. It feels like something we may come to church and do every year, and then we put it back in its box and put it away until next year, and then go about living our lives, and the two don't really relate to each other. But that's not at all how the Bible talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And in a way, we may be able to see that a little bit more clearly than, than even in a normal year at a time like this because we're all so hungry for hope. What I want to do for the next few minutes that we have together is take a look at how the New Testament in the Bible reflects on the meaning of the historical account that we just heard those four ladies read for us, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago. The Bible not only says that it happened, it spends significantly more time talking about why that matters. And we want to survey that briefly this morning. What we'll see is that the consistent message of the Bible is that Jesus' resurrection provides new life for us right now. But we must put that life on in order to experience it. We're going to talk about breathing resurrection air in how we live life. And actually what we're doing this morning comes right out of the pages of the Bible itself. We're going to be in several passages of Scripture, but we're going to sort of anchor our time in the New Testament book of Ephesians. So if you've got a Bible with you or you want to grab that one in the rack in front of you, I would encourage you to open it and turn or swipe if you're doing it on your mobile device to the New Testament book of Ephesians, the end of chapter 1 is where we're going to begin and sort of anchor our time together today. This is, this is a prayer written in the Bible. The Apostle Paul is writing this. He's writing to a church, kind of like ours, that existed in the first century. And so he's praying in writing for this church full of people. And he prays some really interesting things. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. He's praying that some things would be revealed to them. He, t- he says what it is. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, I pray that you would know the hope to which he has called you, that you would know the riches 
of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then catch this. This is what I want us to see this morning. I pray that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's a lot of words. What is he praying? A couple of things to just notice from this passage. First of all, he's, he's declaring something that is really kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. The fact, the event of the resurrection in Jesus, which had already happened a number of years prior to him writing this, he says that was clearly a supernatural miracle. It was literally the power of God doing something that could not happen otherwise. Totally unnatural, totally supernatural. That power that God used to raise Jesus' stone-cold dead body back to life That very power is at work in the lives of every Christian right now. Whoa, that's big. What in the world does that mean? What are we supposed to make of that? That leads to the second thing, I think, to notice about this. His prayer is not that that would be true. He assumes that that's true. Here's his prayer. He prays that they would get it. He prays that they would get it. I pray, he had said back in verse 18, that the eyes of your heart, a sort of poetic way, would be opened, that you would fully understand and appreciate and experience that incomparable fact in your own life as a Christian. That you would interact with the power that raised Jesus' stone-cold dead body back to life and that it would change and shape you. His prayer is that they would understand what is already true. Which is kind of interesting because they, they already believed it. They, these were Christians. So by definition, they believed the gospel, the good news that God came to earth as a man, Jesus. He died on the cross in our place to pay our sins penalty. And then he rose from the dead to new life. You have to believe that in order to even be a Christian. So it's interesting that he's writing to Christians who by definition believe that. And he's saying, I pray that you would really get it. So clearly what's going on here is he says, yeah, I know you understand that like in your heads. You're a church full of people that has said, yes, I believe God raised Jesus from the dead, but you don't really get yet that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is operating in your life. I'm praying that you would see that, to feel that as well as to know it, to experience it, to build your lives around it. He elaborates a little bit in the next chapter. If you drop down to chapter two, he says, you all, plural, he's talking to that whole church, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. He's basically saying we all are born into this place of living for ourselves and rejecting and rebelling against God. We're dead to God. We don't hear his voice. We don't see him as beautiful. We don't love him and worship him and follow him as we should. Our fate is eternal condemnation. But verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. You see, there's Easter again. He made 
us alive with Christ when he made Christ alive. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, Jesus, and seated us with him, Jesus, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What he is saying is that the reality of salvation, of being a Christian, is that God in his mercy has made us alive by raising us up with Jesus. Christians are seated with Jesus in heaven now in some very real sense. Something is going on here. What does that mean? What difference does it make? It means that to be a Christian, to be somebody who seeks to follow Christ, is to experience a down payment of the future perfect life that God will provide in heaven. We experience a down payment, the Bible actually uses that language in a couple places, right here, right now, in this life, in this broken, sin-cursed world. God says, yes, I've forgiven your sins, and you're going to experience joy with me one day where all evil is gone, every tear is wiped away, all injustice is a thing of the past, the world will be perfect, that's going to be awesome then. But it's not like you just have to wait until then. You get a down payment of that that you experience now. Tim Keller recently released uh, a wonderful book. I've skimmed the entire thing. I've now read about a third of it carefully, working my way through it, called Hope in Times of Fear. It's all about the impacts of the resurrection of Jesus. He put it this way. We begin to experience foretastes of our final future state. What does that look like? It looks like a freedom to change and be like Christ. It looks like a sense of God's reality, love, and glory in our hearts. And it looks like a new, loving solidarity with brothers and sisters in Christ that's based on our common identity. Spiritual resurrection, Keller goes on, means that we are, in a sense, living in heaven while still on earth, living in the future while still being present. That's what the Bible's talking about. This is what the Apostle Paul prayed that that church would fully grasp and understand because clearly he didn't think they got it yet. I'm not sure I do either. I think we need the same prayer that we would grasp with our mind, our will, and our emotions. If I'm not experiencing, think of it this way, if I'm not experiencing as a follower of Jesus Christ, radical, meaning like unusual, not explainable by my circumstances, radical peace, radical joy, radical love for other people, and hope for the future, if that is not operationally true in my life, then I'm not grasping how Christ's resurrection power and life is in me right now. So if you're a Christian this morning, how does your experience measure up? Here the Bible prays that this experience of future heaven life in small advanced form would redefine every facet of their lives. So here's what I want to do. With, with the time that we have left, I want to pursue the Bible along two questions and see if we can get some answers here. The first question is simply this. How does resurrection life look? It's one thing to talk in theory about this, this life of heaven that we experience in some form right now, but what does that mean? How does that look? How does that shape a person's life when it's happening? So that's the first question. How does it look? Secondly, how does it work? How does it work? Is it possible to experience resurrection power to change my life and grant hope right now? The Bible insists that it is. Let's look for some guidance on these. First of all, how resurrection life looks. 
the Bible is fairly bursting with descriptions of what a radically changed and changing life looks like, what these sweet foretastes of heaven look and feel like right now. We're going to touch very briefly on four really big ones just to get a little buffet sampling of what the Bible unpacks for us. First of all, how resurrection life looks, it looks like the power for personal change. It gives power for personal change. New Testament book of Romans puts it this way, chapter 6. Speaking again to Christians, we were buried with Jesus in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, there's Easter again, it keeps cropping up. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's what God is doing in us, changing who I am, providing me with more power to change than I have on my own. For since we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, the Bible says, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. When the Bible talks about walking in newness of life, what he's saying is that we too can experience a new and different life. One never becomes a follower of Jesus and remains the same. He does not just forgive us our past sins when we repent and believe in him, but he changes us into less sinful, more Jesus-like people. We walk in newness of life. And that new life exists only because Jesus himself rose from the dead. Keller puts it this way, the faith, or sorry, the event that saves us, the movement from cross to resurrection, now remakes the lives of Christians from the inside out. You see, the Easter message is not just something we acknowledge and therefore I can get my ticket to heaven punched. It is a radically transformative experience that we undergo now, whereby God changes who we are from the inside. It's a life in which, as Romans chapter 6 goes on, in the language of the Bible, it says we are no longer slaves to sin. Slaves to it. Meaning there is no inevitability to sin in my life anymore. That is a radical change. There is, think about that, there's no inevitability to sin in my life right now because of Christ. There is no addiction that has absolute and unbreakable power over my life anymore. No addiction to pornography, to alcohol, to materialism, you name it. It means that no character trait of mine is unchangeable. No amount of, of selfishness or loss of control and anger absolutely has to define me and totally masters me. And it also means that no personal history has unbreakable power anymore. Perhaps not only sins I've committed, but other sins that have been committed against me no longer have absolute, unqualified, and unbreakable power to define who I am. Now, a word of balance. We're talking about foretastes of heaven here, not the thing in its fullness yet. So we will never be perfectly free from sin and temptation in this life until heaven comes. Even freed from addictive behavior, we're constantly tempted to fall back into it, and we often do. That's understood uh, there's a tension here of experiencing a down payment of the kingdom of God where sin and, and death and brokenness are gone 
in a world where they are not yet gone. There is a tension there. Nonetheless, we're never condemned to live in slavery to sin. Is there an aspect of your life that defines you and you wish it didn't? Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a sinful uh, pattern. Maybe it's hurt and pain that defines you and you find hard to break out of it. You know it's not good. You know it's against God and yet it defines you. The Bible says, I pray that you would understand because Jesus rose from the dead that Sin, that brokenness, does not have absolute mastery over you anymore. That's real power. But that's only one example. Here's another example how resurrection life looks, according to the Bible. It brings healing in relationships. It brings healing in relationships, not least of all because it changes the people who are in those relationships. Back to the book of Ephesians chapter 2 to get just one example of many passages of Scripture that discuss this in length. The context of these couple verses that we're about to read is the first century tension between two ethnic and religious groups. Jewish people, on the one hand, and non-Jewish people, Gentiles they called them, on the other hand, people with different ethnic and religious backgrounds. And there was a constant tension between the two. And so here's this long-standing ethnic and religious tension, and the Bible is about to tell us that the death and resurrection of Jesus has eliminated the hostility between these two groups of people and all others. How? Let's read about it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off, that's referring to non-Jewish people who did not have God's word and God's law. So there was a difference before. He says, now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Our peace, our reconciliation between groups of people that misunderstand and despise one another. Jesus himself brings peace between them. How? Because he's made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself, listen to this, one new man in place of the two. That's how he makes peace. And so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body, his own body that died and rose again through the cross. Thereby, he kills the hostility between us. I don't know how to put words to this thought that's in my head. What we just read in those four simple verses is so profound that if it were even half true and our world experienced it, it would change explosively for the better. But here's what he says. How does the resurrection of Jesus give healing to relationships? <laughs> well, we already saw that because it gives us the power for personal change. But personal change apparently goes a lot deeper than just you become a little bit nicer of a person. You sin a little bit less. You respect your husband a little more. You listen to your wife a little bit more. You're a little kinder to your children. You're a little more dutiful at work. That's pretty superficial. The kind of change he's talking about goes all the way to the core of a person's being. The resurrection power of Jesus, when you become a Christian, will fundamentally reshape your identity if you let it. 
It will fundamentally reshape your identity. He says, here's how he gets rid of the distinction between these two ethnic and religious groups. He changes both of their identity into one new kind of person, walking in newness of life. Does that sound familiar? One new person that has been reconciled to God because of Jesus and Jesus alone. That's true of you Jewish person. That's true of you non-Jewish person. Therefore, we're all one. There is no more difference. If that were the operative principle in the racial and ethnic tensions in our land today, how different would our experience be? Again, this is down payment stuff. (laughs) Racism is a tough issue. It is everywhere in the world. It is in our country. One day it will all be gone. We will always struggle with it until then, but here's the point. Here's the point. We can experience real lasting change because Christ transforms our identity and suddenly the way I look at, see, experience, listen to, and relate with other people, especially those who have a different background and experience than I do, completely changes completely changes when Christ reconciles two people to himself in the same way. He changes our identity. By the way, this isn't just about um, relationships between ethnic groups. This goes all the way down to personal relationships too. In fact, starting next week, we at Harvest here are going to begin five Sundays in a row where we're talking about how the resurrection of Jesus impacts marriage relationships. How God transforms spouses and thus marriages. We, we hope it will be honest, it will be um, hopeful, it will be practical. I hope that you join us. Even if you're not married, there are lessons here that apply to all of our relationships. We hope that you will join us. The resurrection of Jesus gives us power for personal change. It gives us hope for healing and relationships, but there's more. It also gives us hope in the midst of suffering. Hope in the midst of suffering. I've thought about this passage from the New Testament of 2 Corinthians in chapter 4 quite a bit this past year. As I've felt my own experiences going through the pandemic and all the tension of it, as well as seeing what other people are writing and expressing on social media and articles and blogs, how discouraging things are, how beat down and stir-crazy we've all become. Those tensions and stresses are real. The Bible says something really interesting here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It talks about how when a person has the resurrection power of God at work within them, the same stresses and pains and frustrations and hurts of life don't go away. They're all still there, but they lose their ability to completely impact the core of our being. Here's how the Bible puts it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse, start in verse 8. It says, and as Christian people, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are we're perplexed. We're confused. We're, we're ready to pull our hair out sometimes at how complicated and difficult life can be, right? But we're not driven to despair. We never get jaded. We are persecuted, sometimes outright attacked personally, but we're not forsaken, left alone. We are struck down. We actually experience physical, financial and sometimes legal and justice-oriented impacts on our lives, people doing bad things to us. But we're not completely destroyed. We always carry about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Do you see what the Bible's doing there? 
It's saying, if I've got the resurrection of power in my life, and I'm standing next to somebody who doesn't, and we're in the same situation in the same society, guess who's going to hurt more? Well, neither one. We're both going to hurt just as much. (laughs) We're both going to hurt just as much. We both experience the same brokenness and pain in life. So what difference does Jesus make in my life? The difference is the pain doesn't absolutely define my experience. I may be perplexed at times, but I'm never despairing and jaded. I may be under incredible suffering and pain and difficulty, but never ultimately in despair and hopelessness. Would you like a bottle of that magic juju? Right? Where does it come from? What is it? Verse 14. You drop down a little bit. It says, We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. There is that stubborn Easter message again. It keeps popping up. Somehow, Jesus being raised from the dead, which had happened years before this was written, makes this a reality that we can experience right now, his resurrection power at work within us. So how does it work? Verse 16, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, amen, (laughs) our inner self is being renewed every day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So we look, that is focus on, we choose to stare intently not at things that are seen, how awful the world is, but on things that are unseen, the future in heaven that I will have with God that I cannot see with my eyes right now because it hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. Because the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You know what the Bible is saying here? It's saying, here's how this works. Here's how this works. Because Jesus rose from the dead, I experience all the same heartache and hardship and it is every bit as painful without Jesus as with Jesus. Life is hard. And until he brings us to heaven someday, that's not going to completely change. So what does change? What changes is that my inner person is being renewed every day. In times of suffering, he points out two things. First of all, there's this long-term hope. It doesn't matter how bad things are right now, it's transient. Because Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible shouts, the way things are is not the best you have to look forward to. We could have nuclear war breakout and the future is still more hopeful than the past because we know where the future is headed. It's headed to heaven and we know that because Jesus rose to eternal life. So there's the long-term hope it gives, but then short-term, that renews the heart every single day if we let it. Many times as Christians we don't, but if we do, That hopefulness of Jesus comes into now my personal chaos and suffering. The resurrection of Jesus means what's happening to me right now is not the best I have to look forward to. That pain and suffering and death will not write my final chapter. Tim Keller's way of putting it is this. He says, when we use the resurrection of Jesus as glasses, that's my word, he says, as a way of looking at and living in the world, It changes how we view and experience difficulties and suffering in this life. This is the kind of thing he's talking about. Somehow the fact that Jesus rose from the dead all that time ago makes all the difference in the world. One more 
just in this survey of what resurrection life looks like. It not only gives hope for personal change, it not only heals relationships, it gives us a hope in suffering, but it gives us an ultimate hope for the future. Ultimate hope for the future. One more passage of scripture before we land back in the book of Ephesians. Again, from the New Testament book of Romans, this time, chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 11. Since this, uh, sorry, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, there it is again. There it is again. Years and years before, but this historical event keeps coming up. Was Jesus dead and did he rise from the dead supernaturally? That matters. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, God's power in us, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's that long-term hope we talked about. So what difference does this make in the world? You drop down to verse 18. That's the context. And now he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And now here he goes a little bit of a different direction than we saw a minute ago in 2 Corinthians. It focuses now not on our own experience of suffering, like 2 Corinthians did. It focuses on the brokenness of the world we live in. Romans 8, 19. For the creation, that is, the world around us, the physical world, the physical universe, and all of the systems and governments and social structures that we set up in it, all of that stuff, the world that we experience, the creation was subject to, sorry, the creation itself waits eagerly in longing for the revelation of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The resurrection of Jesus not only means that individual people have eternity, an eternity of hope to look forward to if we trust in Christ. It means that the world that often seems like it is just irreparably broken, that it is hopelessly going the wrong day, will once again be completely made to rights that the future in the end will inevitably, inescapably be better than the past. Why do we know this? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Over and over and over again, and we could go on, but our time is short, so we'll stop here. The Bible bears witness to the fact that Jesus' resurrection brings a new experience of life. Ultimately, that will change everything for the good, but we can experience that now in ways that change who we are, sometimes painful, always good, in ways that heal relationships, in ways that give us endurance and suffering, and in ways that give us hope for the future. The kind of endurance and suffering and hope for the future that so many of us need to experience right now. If we're hoping today in social progress, political agendas, or technological advances to make the world a better place 20 years from now than it is today, our prospects are pretty bleak. Man, I thank God for the brains he's given us, for the practice of science and our ability to uh, implement technologies and vaccines and medications that demonstrably heal and help people. These are all goods. But if our ultimate hope for a better world is on what we can do, the history's track record is not great. If our ultimate hope is that God will remake the world because Jesus rose from the dead, we have a solid hope, which leads us 
really to the second question I wanted to look at this morning. The first is, what, is, how does, what does resurrection life look like? How does it look? But the second question in our final few minutes, how does that work? How does that work? These promises of the Bible are glorious. They're wonderful. They sound good. It looks great on paper. Can I speak honestly to those of us who profess to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior? Christians. How often have you experienced anything like what we've just seen the Bible describing? Are you like, yeah, I know what that's like. I've been there before. I don't live there, but I know what that's like. Or are we reading things that you go, this is the kind of stuff you hear in church. And that, I've been a Christian. I've been going to church for 30, 40 years. I've just not, I, yeah. That's not what believing in Jesus has done for me. How many professing Christians have rarely, if ever, experienced anything like this resurrection life. Yet the Bible talks about it as if this is normal. This is the whole thing of what it means to follow Jesus. So how does one experience this new kind of life in a practical, day-to-day way? Thankfully, we're not left without guidance. I want to just talk about two main ways that the Bible talks about here. First, how do we experience resurrection life? Whether you're a follower of Jesus how do I experience that? Or you're not yet a follower of Jesus. How can this become true of you? First, we have to believe that it happened. We have to believe that it happened. It being the resurrection of Jesus. You see, there's a logic to everything that the Bible is saying. There's a logic to every New Testament passage we've quoted so far. Because Jesus rose from the dead... By God's power, God's power is at work in you and it can change you. How do you know it? Because you saw how it changed Jesus' stone-cold dead body back to life. So the whole logic of the Bible, the whole logic of the gospel, the whole logic of Christianity rests on the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And so it's not surprising to see the Bible put emphasis on that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul describes the message of the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There it is. That's what you have to believe in order to find eternal life in the smallest of nutshells. That's it. But then he goes on, verses 5 through 8. And then after being raised from the dead, he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve, his original Uh, disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, that is, they were when he was writing these words. You can go talk to other people who saw him rise from the dead, though some of them have fallen asleep, that has died. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, the apostle Paul says, he also appeared to me. So interesting to me that in explaining the gospel, in explaining the message of what one must believe, he takes two verses to explain the gospel and four to substantiate it. He wants people to know the witnesses that were out there and what they're putting on the line so that you'll know, you'll have confidence that we're not just making some religious story up. That was really important to him 2,000 years ago. Why? Because if it didn't happen, 
it doesn't matter. None of it matters. The Bible doesn't matter. And the Bible itself says so. Drop down to verse 14. I'm still in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, If Christ Jesus has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. That means the gospel, it's empty. There's nothing to it. And your faith is in vain. All of you Christians, you're believing in a lie. If it didn't actually happen. Christianity is unique among world religions because it is relentlessly historical. That is, it's not just a list of principles to live by. There is no Christian five pillars of Christianity. There is no eightfold path to follow of Christianity that will lead you to the place of, of nirvana and perfect balance. Christianity is a person to be trusted and an event to bank your entire eternity on. The historical event of, of Jesus' resurrection makes Christianity work. Without it, there's no Christianity. A couple of verses later, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, Christian. It's not doing anything for you. And you are still in your sins. Everything hinges on whether Jesus was actually dead and actually supernaturally rose from the dead. There's so much we could say on that topic. Is it even possible to know, to have confidence that that happened 2,000 years as we are removed from those events? If you've never looked into rational reasons to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead supernaturally, there's a surprising amount of evidence. We actually have a book out in our atrium this morning. We've got a few copies left um, that we're just giving to you at our cost, which is great because we got a steal on them. They're only five bucks. It's called The Case for Christ. Three sections in that book. The third section focuses all about how are you to think about whether or not this guy actually rose from the dead 2,000 years ago in a modern scientific age. Is that even possible? Is that rational? Does that make any sense? I'd encourage you to grab a copy of that book. Or if you want to just get it on your own or you're watching us online and you're not here to buy it, you can also grab it. Uh, or a companion book called The Case for Easter, which is smaller and it just focuses on the resurrection. Expose yourself to why should I even believe this? Because if it's just a religion story and it didn't really happen, the Bible itself tells you, who's got time for that? God provides amazing resources to transform your life, but they're only available to people who believe the resurrection happened because that's the power that gives us those resources. That's how it works. First of all, we have to believe that it happened. But secondly, we have to not only believe it, we have to bank on it. We have to bank on it. I'm going to end where we started this morning in the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 4. The Bible tells Christians how to live out the resurrection power of God. In verses 22 to 24, it says, You put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through sinful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and then put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's this like, word picture. He describes it as a suit of clothing. You take off this old you, Christian. You believe in Jesus' resurrection. You've repented of your sins. Okay, well now there's two sets of clothes in your closet. There's an old you that's characterized by sinfulness. Everybody's sin's going to look a little different, but it's all common to all of us. And then there's a new you that is freed from sin and lives for the glory of God. 
The question is, which one are you going to put on today? This hour. This next five minutes. We carry a changing room with us wherever we go. And we're constantly pulling this coat off and putting this one on and taking this one off and putting this one back on. Many Bible scholars and Bible teachers have referred to these three verses as spiritual breathing. That's a good uh, analogy. I didn't come up with it, but I'm going to go with it. Spiritual breathing, you've got to exhale and inhale. You exhale carbon dioxide and other impurities, and you've got to inhale the life-giving oxygen. The reason that that's a useful analogy is that, that breathing is a key rhythm of life, right? Every one of you has breathed hundreds of times since I started talking, and you probably didn't think about it till I just said that, right? Now everybody's thinking about how they're breathing. <laughs> or maybe you did because you got a mask on your face and that's annoying. And we're all thinking about breathing a little bit more. Can't wait to breathe more freely. Yes, amen. But here's the point. We know breathing is not something you take care of once as an infant. <laughs> Get all that carbon dioxide out. <laughs> Breathe in all that fresh oxygen. Sweet. Got that one whipped. Now let me go on with my life. It doesn't work that way. You've got to constantly breathe out and breathe in, breathe out and breathe in. It is the basic rhythm of life. To breathe out is to, as the Bible puts it here, take off your old self. What does that mean? Well, briefly. It simply means, like, I identify it. I know what the old sinful me is. My sinful me might look a little different than your sinful you, but we're both sinful. <laughs> so I got to know what mine looks like. It's a lot easier to point out somebody else's sinfulness, isn't it? I got to know where my sinful, God-rejecting, live-for-myself tendencies are and how that tends to manifest itself in my own life. So I get better and better at identifying that. And then when I do, I take it and I do what the Bible says with it. I confess it to God as the sin that it is. And I'm always looking for root sins. Man, I'm so angry right now. Why are you angry? Well, because this person did that and they shouldn't have. Okay, you're right. But why are you angry? Well, because of them. Well, yeah, <laughs> they did what's wrong, but you're mad about it. Uh, do you have too big a justice button? Do you want to make sure that you get what's coming to you? Is your life all about you? And often I'm going like, oh, yeah. I think it is. I can point out the wrong in somebody else without getting personally offended. But when my ego is offended, you see, now I'm mad because I'm all about my ego. Well, wait a minute. Suddenly it's not about their sin. It's about my sin. See, I'm always looking for root sins. And then I confess them and I repent of them. Last couple of weeks, I've had so many conversations with so many different people talking about our church, talking about how we do what we do, especially in a year where, Lord willing, COVID restrictions will continue to uh, lighten up and we'll be able to get back to more and more of the kind of things that we do as a church family. We want to do them very purposefully, so we're just evaluating everything, really kind of invigorating process. It's fun, it's energizing. There was one point not long ago where in the midst of one of these conversations that I've had, just dozens of them with, with scores and scores of people, one person said one thing. I doubt they even had any idea how it would strike me. And um, it struck me. I didn't like it. Because while they were making a comment about our church and how we can focus more in a particular area, I felt like they were talking about me and my failure. I didn't think that at the time. I just had a reaction to it. And I was like, what's up with that? So I did what all people, you know, mature, wise people do. I ignored it. Um, <laughs> kidding. 
Actually, I'm not kidding. I did just kind of ignore it. I went on with my day, right? And then later that night, I'm like, oh man, I'm home and I'm, I'm like, I, God, I gotta be honest. I start praying because I'm like, every time I think about this, it still bothers me. And then it bothered me that I was bothered. Have you ever had that happen? I'm like, why does this matter to me? But I can't, well, I can, but I'm not gonna like lie about it and pretend this doesn't bother me. I don't like it. And I don't like that I don't like it. And I'm getting ready for Easter Sunday. In Ephesians chapter 4, I'm like, that's the old me. That's the old Matt. The old Matt wants to be seen as having it all together, which can lead me to hypersensitivity toward criticism. I'm not always there, but I am sometimes, and that one snuck up on me. Like, I've got to do business with God. You've got to breathe that out. I've got to confess the sin that is in me. But then I also need to inhale. I've got to put on that new self, to use the Apostle Paul's language here in Ephesians 4. That is, I need to see the new self for what it is. What is the new you? What is the remade you? The remade Matt. The remade John or Sue or... One that is so in love with Christ that self doesn't matter that much. One that is so excited about the life I have in Christ that I just want to live this life for him not protect my little world and just live for my comfort. For me, the, real, the new real me is being so captivated by Jesus, so passionate about his glory and so in love with what he is doing through the church that I don't care about how I look. And you know the cool thing? I've been there. Like I know what that suit of clothes feels like by God's grace. I've been there. I don't live there all the time. But I know what that feels like. I know what that looks like. And I'm sitting there that night a while ago thinking, that's not the suit of clothes I have on right now. I've got to breathe this out. I've got to breathe this in. I've actually been to places where constructive criticism is welcome because it helps me be a better dad, a better husband, a better pastor, a better preacher, a better son, a better brother, a better whatever. And I'm like, I want to be. That's great. Thank you for telling me how I can do better. It doesn't bother me. I'm actually excited about it. And I'm like, whoa, there's two different reactions, isn't there? I got an old me. I got a new me. The old me wants to make much of me. The new me wants to make much of God who became man and died for me and rose from the dead and will recreate the world and wipe every tear away from our eyes. That's worth making much of. We all need to go through that experience. What is the old you? Understand it. Acknowledge it. Agree with God that that is sin. Don't lie. Don't explain away. Don't minimize sin. But acknowledge to God that's sin. It's wrong. I confess it. Jesus, would you kill it in me? And then turn and say, Spirit of God, would you fill me? Change me as I seek to follow you. You know, the very first time you do that, we call it conversion. That's what it means to become a Christian. Friends, if you're here and you're a churchgoer or even a religious person, but you have never repented of your sins and embraced, embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're seeing this new life and going, man, could that possibly be true? I want to get in on that. Jesus is inviting you in on that. We would love to talk with you about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ. Acknowledge your sin to him in prayer. I would love to talk with you about that after our service or this week if you feel comfortable. Calling the office will set up a time to talk. Become a follower of Jesus and experience new life for the first time. But as we've said, that doesn't just happen once. 
Rather, this is the entire pattern of the Christian life. Breathing out, breathing in. I think so many of us as Christians never experience radical resurrection life because we're just too comfortable with our ticket to heaven punched and we don't want to go through the work of confessing deep sin, confessing anxiety, letting God know where this is coming from, and then putting on that new self. But it's so worth it. It is so worth it. What do you need to exhale this morning? What sin defines the old you and keeps you from experiencing not only the forgiveness of Christ, but the foretastes of heaven that he's already made possible for you because he rose from the dead? That life is available for the taking if we will but repent of our sins and embrace him as Savior and Lord. Day in, day out. That is the hope that's available. That's the hope of Easter. And friends, that is worth celebrating that that life exists. Amen? And that's because of our Savior Jesus. I want to invite the worship team back up here. And let's sing to him of resurrection, joy, and power. Father God, you have given us more than we can imagine. We've sought with our our time and our attention here to just get at least the smallest of of a survey of what you've really brought to us in terms of your ability to change us. God, I pray that you would move now in your spirit, that you would move hearts to repent of sin, that you would move minds to embrace the fact of your resurrection and your love for us, and that you would radically reshape our lives so that there is incredible hope that points to a life that is yet to come, and we experience a down payment of that right now. I pray that that hope would fuel the lives of the members of this church, and that through that we would live lives of hope in the community around us to give water to thirsty people. We would see many of our friends and neighbors come to faith in Christ and receive the same life-giving hope. Jesus, thank you for dying. Thank you for rising from the dead. It's your name that we pray in and praise. Amen.